This morning we're going to read from Romans chapter 5. It's on the front page of your handout if you want to read along with me. I invite you to do that. Romans 5, chapter, uh, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into His grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him? For if, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Him through the death of His Son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through His life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have reconciliation. Let's pray for a moment. Father God, thank you for everyone who's here this morning. You know each person, you know our thoughts, you know our lives, you know our joys, you know our struggles. Thank you for caring about all of who we are and about all of us. Thank you for allowing us to read about Jesus in these scriptures and for the record that's been handed down through the centuries. Our common bond is that we're drawn to Jesus. We're drawn to His love, to His wisdom, to His humanity, to His grace, to His kindness, to His truth. And we ask that You would mark our lives with all of these things, and that over time You would more and more complete Your work in making us more like Jesus in heart, in mind, in character, we pray that you will continue to grant us your love, not just for ourselves, but that, so that you can love others through us. We ask for wisdom for this week, that you would guide us in every challenge and decision that we have to make. We pray for wisdom. We pray for humility. We pray for understanding. We pray that you would make us aware of what's going on around us, the needs of others, the opportunities that you put right before us. We ask that you would help us to learn this morning something that we can take into the week, this week, that will fill us spiritually, that will carry us into actions that honor you and words that reflect your wisdom. We also pray for those who are around us, our neighbors, our co-workers, our families. We pray for those members of our families who either are resisting you or who've wandered away and um, seemingly have chosen to live this season of their lives apart from you. 
or even in anger toward you. We ask that you put somebody in their place, in their pathways, who can speak truth to them in a way that each one can hear. We pray that you will draw them with your love and your graciousness and your kindness, but most of all with your truth. We pray for this land that we live in, for our local town leaders and public servants, whether they be police or fire and emergency people or teachers and town government leaders. Pray for our state leaders because you ask us to, for our senators, for our congressmen and women, for those who work in, in state government roles. We pray for our federal government all the way up to the president's office. Lord, we know that all of these people need wisdom. And it seems that we live in such a polarized time and a confusing time in a time where there's an awful lot of political theater on both sides. And while we may not all agree on how we vote or how our politics line up, we can agree on this. They all need an awful lot of help. And so, Lord, we ask that you would pour out wisdom to them and that you would put people in their pathways that each one will listen to and that you will influence their thinking and their decisions and that you'll change hearts and minds where appropriate. Speaking of hearts and minds, change our hearts and our minds if that's what needs to be done even here today. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a question for you. Have you ever been caught in an act of self-justification? You know what self-justification is, don't you? It's where you know down deep that something's not quite right maybe off, maybe really wrong, but you're going to defend that position anyway. And, and we come up with excuses about how we can convince somebody that really we were in the right all along. And it's kind of defensive in nature, right? Um, one of my all-time favorite movies is A Few Good Men. And if you've ever seen the film, you're probably familiar with the most memorable dramatic scene in that film. Tom Cruise plays a young JAG Corps lawyer who is defending two young Marines who are facing very serious charges. During the trial, Cruise interrogates a tough Marine colonel who's played by Jack Nicholson. And the tension begins to build to this moment in the trial as Nicholson's character is attempting to justify his own actions, which everybody else can begin to see are completely out of line. And he gives this condescending, evasive set of answers to the questions coming his way. Finally, the young lawyer that Cruz plays yells, I want the truth. Now help me with this next part. And Nicholson responds as the Marine Colonel, the Marine Colonel, you, you can't handle the truth. Yeah, you can't, you, I guess you guys have seen that. AJ had a little uh, emphasis going on there. Wow. You like that one. Here's the point. Truth is often difficult. It's often hard to handle. There are difficult elements of truth where when it rubs against our lives in areas where we're operating outside of the truth or in denial to the truth, we get uncomfortable. So truth is one of those things that is fantastic when we embrace it and it's difficult stuff 
when we run against the grain of the truth. One of our core truths of Christian faith is often presented by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Roman church that we read a few moments ago, and it is truth that is difficult to handle. After evaluating the systems that people typically rely on, the system of secularism, of moralism, or of religious perfectionism, Paul then concludes that when you look at the sea of humanity, at the end, every mouth will be silenced before God, and that we all fall short of the righteous expectations of God, and that the only hope that we have is to be redeemed by God. Paul puts it this way in Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by His grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. The core theological concept embedded in those verses is known as justification by grace through faith. It's a wonderful concept that we can never repeat too often here because it needs to break through for all of us. Theologians refer to it as the linchpin of the gospel. So what is justification? It's an act of God where God is pictured in the courtroom of heaven and where at the end of time all of us will appear before God one by one and before God all of the events of our lives play out, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And some of it's ugly, right? And just about the time that there's enough evidence that spills out that we're really embarrassed by and there's enough evidence to convict us and we think everything's going to go south, for those who have faith in Jesus and have entrusted their lives to him, he steps in the gap and says, hold on a minute, judge, father. Before you render your verdict, I want you to know one thing. At such and such a time, this woman put her trust in me, and I carried her sins to the cross. This man put his trust in me, and on that day that I died, on that Good Friday, I carried his sins to the cross. They're paid for. God hears that, and he bangs the gavel in heaven, and he says, I pronounce a sentence. I declare you to be innocent in my sight. Not because we are, not, not because there's nothing we've ever done wrong, but because somebody else has paid the penalty that was owed, and we are set free forever to live in the riches of his grace. Does that make sense to you? Now, that concept is absolutely essential for where we're headed today because it is the backdrop of what we're going to talk about this morning. This morning, we're in the second week of our series that we're calling Healthy on the Inside, and our topic is finding peace with God. Last week, we learned that spiritual health starts by embracing what I call the inside-out principle. This came from a conflict that Jesus had with some of the teachers of the day in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago, where they looked at externals. They got very, very good at polishing things up from the outside of life so that things would have the appearance that all was okay. And Jesus' comment was basically that the inside is the part that we need to worry about, that you can polish up the outside and we can be fooled by externals, but God sees the heart, cares about the heart, works on the heart, and God always works from the inside out. And he cares less about how we look, how we dress, all the, all the customs and rituals that we might go through. What he does care about most is the condition of the heart. 
Are we being changed by the Lord? And is, is the heart and the mind being affected by his truth? So what we're going to talk about today builds on that foundation. We're going to look at some of the advantages in life that come from being justified by God. So let me say a word before I dive into this. There are two audiences that are always here on, on a Sunday. Some of you are at the beginning of all this. You might be a spiritual seeker or a skeptic and you're asking questions. Some are even deliberately kicking the tires to say, what is historic Christian faith all about? Because that's what we try to do is explain one nugget of historical Christian truth week by week and then challenge people to try and grapple with that and, and try to live it out as best we can. So you need to know that everything that we're talking about here this morning is available to you too, even if you're an absolute beginner, and can be applied to your life when you transfer your trust to Jesus and you recognize him as the Lord, the Savior, and our Redeemer. And when you do that, your life begins to change from the inside out. Now, this message also has an element that is applied to longtime believers. Because the truth is, we can often go through the motions, and sometimes we don't feel the inner changes, the inner direction that we did when we were a brand new Christian. And we need to be reminded of some of these things so that we don't get lulled into sleep, and that we are challenged to live out our faith in ways that grapple with truth and in ways that cause our behaviors to begin to look more and more like the faith that we have on the inside. Does that make sense? So really, we're, we're addressing both audiences with the same body of truth. What I'd like to talk about this morning are five advantages that come from having faith in Jesus. So the beginner can look at this and say, wow, these might be reasons for me to believe, but these are things to treasure for those who have had a long-time faith. Here's the first one, peace with God. David Coach just led us in that song that he wrote a couple of years ago, I give you peace, echoing the words of Jesus from John's gospel. Here Paul writes, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through the Lord Jesus Christ. The advantages or benefits that we're talking about come from being justified by grace through faith. And Paul is making an assumption about his audience, the people who are reading this, because he's writing to the church. And so he uses a past tense verb followed by a present tense concept. Since we have been justified is the past, anticipating that we've heard this before, that we've acted on it, that we've embraced Jesus. But the current present tense aspect follows, we have peace with God here and now. So please realize that the benefits that we're talking about, the advantages that we talk, we're talking about, are not for someday in the kingdom of heaven after you die. They are for now. They are for here. They are for living out in this life that you and I have right now. And Paul wants us to see that each of these advantages flow directly from the redemptive work of Jesus. This, the first advantage is this concept of peace with God. You might be saying, well, wait a minute. I was never at war with God. Why would I need peace with God? I've, I've never wanted anything but peace with God. So we need to see here that the peace of God stands in contrast to another concept that Paul raised in the third paragraph we read together about the wrath of God. 
Wrath isn't just hot-headed anger. Wrath is the, the just, righteous anger of God toward things that are wrong. You and I get angry about some things in this world, and there are times we are right in our anger. We, we get angry when somebody harms somebody else who's young or defenseless or innocent. That is a righteous anger. And some of God's anger that is expressed toward the world is over people like us rejecting his commands or ignoring his commands or saying, it just doesn't really matter. I can do whatever I want. He'll bless me anyway. God gets rightly uh, angry over things like that. His peace comes in contrast to that. Along with the concept of justification, Paul explains that God has declared another verdict, a first verdict. The first verdict is that no one will be justified or made right with God simply by being good enough. And so this redemption is talked about, redemption through faith in Jesus, is always God's solution to our sin problem. He doesn't ask us to come up with our own solution. In fact, when we do come up with our own solution, we are in some ways uh, presenting our plan as better than God. We are participating in, in kind of an idolatry that, that we can figure out something better than what God has already provided. That creates a sense of alienation. Our sin creates alienation between God and us, and we can't solve that on our own. Alienation is sometimes felt by people who have been apart from God for some time, and when you bring up the concept of talking about your faith or talking about God, and somebody says, wait, wait a minute, I don't want to hear about any of that, this makes me uncomfortable. Why do they say that? Because the discomfort comes from that sense of alienation that's already there, and you've tapped into it just by talking about your faith or by wanting to share the good news of, of what you are relying on. Sometimes that alienation attaches itself to a long-term Christian who's begun to operate in his or her own power. We've lost our disciplines. We're not praying very much anymore. We're not reading Scripture very much anymore. Church is optional. I come when I want to to get a, you know, a good feeling. And pretty soon, we're finding that we're not in the pathway where the truths of God are being reinforced in such a way that it's penetrating, that it's carrying us through the week. And we can feel this sense of alienation too, even though we've already been reconciled to God. Does that make sense? You guys with me? Um, I would imagine everybody here has experienced that in one way, shape, or form at some time. So when we transfer our trust from ourselves to Jesus, God then declares a second verdict. And the second verdict is this verdict of uh, being declared righteous by his judicial act on the basis of what Christ has done for us. So there's a very simple recipe at work. Trusting in Jesus results in peace with God. The need for peace with God is actually what pushes some away from God because they know that that's the source, but it's the very thing that we crave and we long for it. Peace with God, when we experience it, also brings an element of spiritual rest into our experience, in, into our daily experience. So I have to ask the question, are you today at peace with God? I ask that to those of you who are on the seeking end of things, but I also ask that of those of you 
who consider yourselves long-time Christians, long-time believers. Are you at peace with God? Is there something in your life that is at odds with God? What he really wants to do is bring us all to a place where we are living in that peace with God. Make sense? Here's the second advantage, access to God. Verse 2 starts off this way, through whom we have gained access by faith. What a great concept, access to God. Where in your life do you have access, real access to position or power? A few years ago, I, I wrote a letter to one of our senators, Ed Markey. And by the time I got a response from his office, so many weeks had gone by that I forgot what the letter was all about. <laughs> That's not access. <laughs> I'm not sure he ever saw it. I think somebody in his office wrote a perfunctory form letter. That's what government officials typically do. And it didn't have any impact. There's an old story of a young boy in the British Isles who slipped away from his parents when they were on a vacation to London. And the little boy kept saying to his parents, I want to see the queen, I want to see the queen. So when they got to Buckingham Palace, he found a way to slip mom's grasp and he got lost in the crowd and pretty soon he was at the gates in front of Buckingham Palace. And he looked up at the big tall guard with the funny hats on and he said, I want to see the queen. And they just kept looking straight ahead. And then he found a way to another one of the gates and there was another one of those guards with those big black fuzzy hats on and he said, I want to see the queen and completely ignored his request. And realizing his parents wouldn't help him and the guards wouldn't help him, he sat down and as a little boy does, he started to cry a little bit. He was, he was so discouraged. The story goes that after a while, there was another little boy who came along, saw him crying, and said, what's wrong? He said, I want to see the queen. The little boy said, okay. He took his hand, walked up to the guards, and they let him pass right through, and walked into the palace, and they let him walk right in. Why? Everything's different once you get to know the prince. And the prince can walk in and see the king. And so it is with access to God. Everything changes in the way that we see God, understand God, react to God when we know the Prince of Peace, Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, Paul is saying, you and I have access to God. Access is a great word. It tells us that we belong. It confers upon us some status. When I think of access, I'm reminded of Esther in the Old Testament. Remember the story of Esther? She's the beauty queen who gets married to the king of Medo-Persia, but there's this weird little rule that nobody gets to just walk into the presence of the king uninvited. If you do that, he has to extend the scepter, otherwise you die. But things are so dire that Esther decides that she will approach the, the king, and she says to her uncle Mordecai, you know, you do the same thing that my maids and I are going to do. Pray and fast for three days, day or night, and when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it's against the law, and if I perish, I perish. And he extended access to her and said he would hear what she had to say and he would grant her any wish that she wanted, up to half the kingdom. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a Welsh preacher in the previous century, says that this word access might be better rendered as an introduction We've been granted an introduction to the king's court by Jesus and we're invited into his presence. Whenever there's a need, whenever we're hurting, whenever there's a problem that's great and we need wisdom, on a daily basis just to talk to God, 
It's never wasted time. It's never foolishness. It's taking advantage of this access that we are promised. Peace with God, access to God. Here's the third of these advantages. The status of standing in grace. So if we play verse 2 out a little bit farther, it says, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Here, Paul is now reminding us that there was a time when we did not have this kind of access. This was before we experienced the justifying work of God in our lives. Justification is a one-time act by God. Once he declares us to be righteous by faith in Christ, there's a sense of assurance that begins to take over. In fact, the Greek verb tense that, that is used here ought to read, through whom we have had our access. And so this concept paints a new picture for us that we're standing in grace. We don't shuffle into grace. We're not sliding into grace. We are standing in grace confidently, not because of anything we've done, not because of who we are all by ourselves, but because of who we are in relationship with, because who we are trusting in what Jesus has done. So this is the picture of you, standing boldly before the throne of God, belonging. Can we throw that picture up of the person standing on the rock? That'd be a good shot, spot for that right there. If you can, I want you to say this with me. I am standing in grace. Can you say that with me? I am standing in grace. Just say it like you mean it. I am standing in grace. Look at that picture. It has the idea of a person who is standing on a high rock looking at the, the awe and the wonder of the creation around us and saying, I'm in a place of wonder. I'm in a place of awe. That's really what it means and should, we should sense when we say words like that, that I am standing in a place of grace. I'm standing with the confidence of grace. It's not about who we are. It's all about who our Savior is. And it's a wonderful ability to be able to say, I can't control much in this life, but I know this, that His grace is ever with me and will not be taken from me. Now we can take this up one notch higher. Paul says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. It's the glory of seeing God one day. It's the the glory that one day all this will pass and we will see grace in all of its fullness. I think it may have been some of what prompted old Charles Wesley to write in his ancient hymn, Love Divine. There's this one line where he says, change from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before thee, lost in wonder, love, and praise. When we stand in grace, we stand with confidence that we can approach the living God, but we, we stand with wonder and awe of what He has done. Here's the fourth advantage, hope. Not just any hope, but hope that transforms our difficulties. Anybody going through a difficult time right now? You don't have to raise your hand, but I'll bet you some of you are. I talked with some people in the first service who said, boy, how did you know I needed to be here today? Well, I didn't, God did. Hope that transforms our difficulties. Notice what Paul writes here, starting at the end of verse 2. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, 
Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. There's a weird concept. Because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So now you see that because of God's justifying work, we have three great benefits. Peace with God, access to God, and the ability to stand confidently in grace. And now Paul wants us to know that all of these benefits or advantages will be tested in life because you will be tested in life. Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 16, in this world you will have trouble. He didn't say that some of you will have trouble. He said, in this world, you, all of you will have trouble, and that includes us. So when trials and tribulations come our way, at first we are caught by surprise. We initially react the way everybody else else reacts. Hey, wait a minute, that's not fair. Hey, this isn't good. Hey, this isn't what I signed up for. Isn't God supposed to root all this stuff out of my life? And then the words come back from Jesus, in this life, you will have trouble. And then we step back and we think a little bit, and our second reaction is often turning back to God and saying, okay, God, what will you do with this? If I give this back to you, how can you bring good out of this situation? When we turn to God and put our hope in God during these times of testing and trouble, we should expect that our hope matures and produces even more benefits in our lives so that little by little the character of Christ is being developed in each of us. You know what we've all learned about character? It never arrives through an easy process. Character always arrives through testing. Character never shows up apart from perseverance through challenging situations. Don't you wish it was different? I do. I'd like the easy path, but it just doesn't work that way, and Paul is telling us to expect that. So we find that when we rejoice in our sufferings, suffering actually does produce perseverance, and we press on. And as we persevere, as we press on, we find that our perseverance over time develops character. So the next time it happens, our reaction isn't quite as defensive a little more ready. And as character is developed in us, it results in an even stronger hope. What this means is that being in a state of grace with God never exempts us from the trials and troubles that are normal to life. Rather, God chooses to use them to produce good things in our lives rather than to merely exempt us from them. So the hope that he's talking about here becomes a tested hope. It becomes a seasoned hope. It becomes a character-born hope. Are you able from time to time to look back on your life and see that there were times in your life when the testing was great, when the trials were challenging and maybe even difficult, and that God strengthened you through that time? Sometimes we can look backward and see how God has, has brought 
characteristics that we didn't see him developing at the time because we were caught in our own defensiveness. We were caught in our own initial reaction. But when you look back later, you can see what he's done. I'll give you an example. My very first pastoral job when I returned to the church that I grew up in in Weymouth uh, after finishing my Master of Divinity degree gave me a job uh, in the role of the interim youth pastor. Now, it's not what I had trained for. It's not really what I had my heart set on. But I was coming back to the church where I grew up, and it was an honor to serve there in a lot of ways. And the, the people who gave me that role and asked me to take that on in the absence of a senior pastor, said, our hope is that you will stay here for a long, long time. We want you to do that. Three months into the job, we got a new senior pastor, and he decided his very first decision was that local kid has to go. I want a career youth pastor, and he's not. Now, at the time, that stung, because I had some guy who didn't know me, didn't know our church, in the midst of a whole group of people who'd watched me from the time I was a little boy, say, he's got to go. The friend that he said that to was the chairman of the search committee, who happened to be a close friend of mine's dad. And on the very first night when he arrived in town and had just taken the job, right after the prayer over the dinner, that was the first thing he said, that local kid's got to go. And, and I had to go. That hurt. My initial reaction was, wow, that stung. Uh, wow, I'm in the midst of a whole group of people who, who've known me my whole life. And um, because he's the new guy and he's the senior pastor, his word goes. And, and I was out. You know what I can say today? That was absolutely the best decision that ever had. <laughs> I would never have grown in the way that I needed to grow in that particular church because it was my home church. I would have been held back there in a lot of ways. And I've been a senior pastor now for 35 years. I got news for you. When we hire youth pastors, I want somebody who wants to be a youth pastor for a good long while. Maybe not for their whole lives, but uh, not somebody who's just taking the job as an interim thing to do. God produced perseverance and good things out of what hurt at the time. Here's the, fourth, the fifth thing that he, he provides for us, the fifth advantage, an outpouring of love. I like the way that this hope and perseverance and testing and all those things are couched in this presentation of the outpouring of God's love. Look what Paul writes here, verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, in other words, long before we ever called on his name, <clears throat> Christ died for us. Paul's discussion of hope leads to the way that God has poured out his love on us. Notice the Trinitarian involvement of God's love. God the Father pours out his love. He's the pourer. He does this through the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit is the deliverer. And the ultimate demonstration of this love is that Christ 
died for us and gave up his own life to pay for our sins. The emphasis is placed on the timing of God's love being poured out through Christ. Verse 6 says, you see, at just the right time, Christ did this. Verse 8 says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't wait for you and me to fix ourselves, to complete ourselves, to become uh, experts in theology, to shine up all the exterior parts of our life. He takes you when you're a mess, and he applies his work to us right there. That's the love of God. And he pours love into people who drastically need to be redeemed in the midst of a broken world that is difficult to live in, in the midst of hurts and pains that we all collect. Romans 5, 8 is one of those single verses that encapsulates this whole gospel. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So here's the big idea that I've been trying to build to for this morning. Trusting Jesus brings peace with God, access to God, and outpouring his love, and that transforms life's testing and trials. Trusting in Jesus brings peace with God naturally, brings access to God by our relationship with Jesus, brings an outpouring of God's love through his spirit, and together those things transform all the testing and the trials that we go through in life. Now, this leads to some questions. Here's the first one. Is it possible that there are some here today where you're wearing yourself out with your attempts to make sure that the good outweighs the bad in your life? I can't tell you how easily that sneaks back in, but that is the exact opposite of grace. You trying to do it, you trying to be the Savior. I was deliberate in our communion time and said, did you see any saviors in the room? I don't, and I'm not one. I get to be a proclaimer, a communicator of the Savior, but I am not a Savior. I can't save anyone, even myself. Thank God we have Jesus. Second question. Do you have that sense of alienation from God? When I talked about that, did that make you feel uncomfortable? I asked that not to guilt trip anybody, but to acknowledge that's something that we all wrestle with at, at one time or another. And I want you to know that God wants to lift that from you. Are you going through a period of trial and testing right now in your life? A few of you started to raise your hands as if to say, you bet I am. This hurts. So, if you can answer yes to any one of those three questions, it's time for you to either transfer your trust to Jesus or to renew your trust to Jesus this morning. And when you do, whether you're a first-timer or whether you're a veteran Christian, that sense of peace with God will become more and more prominent in your life and more and more an experiential reality. Peace is not just an airy-fairy theological concept the Bible talks about. God wants us to know and live in his peace today. And even when you transfer your trust to him, you'll need to take some steps to grow in faith, but this is the starting point. How does that happen? You pray a simple prayer, something like this, God, I need your help. 
I can't save myself. I've royally messed up, fill in the blanks, all the ways. I know that Jesus is the one and only Savior that you have sent. And so I'm going to switch from my own ability to have to be religious enough or good enough to trust that Jesus has done something for me that I could never do for myself. Will you give me the righteousness of Jesus? Will you see me through my connection to him? I'm betting the farm on Jesus. That's what a transfer of trust is. When you get to a point where you're saying, spiritually, I'm betting the farm on Jesus, that he really was God's son, our Savior. And when you do that, everything begins to change. And the peace of God begins to flow. And when you renew that, and you begin to pick up some of the disciplines of being reminded daily of God's power in your life, that sense of peace, even in the midst of absolute chaos, comes back. And it will sustain you. Trusting Jesus brings peace with God, access to God, an outpouring of love, and that transforms life's testing and trials. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for every person here. Here the person who might be saying, Lord, there's a shift in my mind and in my heart going on right now. Here I come, doubts and all. Lord, here the person who's a veteran Christian saying, Lord, I've been doing this in my own strength way too long. I need your peace. I need to submit to you. I need to ask for your help and your power in my life. I want to live in your peace. And I'm willing to change the way that I'm going about living, living out my faith so that I am more empowered by you daily. Remove the alienation. Fill that spot with peace. In Jesus' mighty, redemptive name, amen.